we have gathered together this morning for a phase of our worship that is a ritual that has significance. It is a ritual that is authorized. In other words, really, this is the only ritual that is authorized to be celebrated in the name of Jesus Christ. All the other things that you're going to be hearing, of course, you know, in the next few weeks, have nothing to do with Christianity, with paganism. So this is the only ritual that the Lord instituted, commanded the church to do. Because he said, do this in remembrance of me. So, what that means is this is the only time, in a sense, when all believers on this planet, in a, a local church, could gather together and think about the Lord Jesus Christ simultaneously. In other words, you can think about the Lord at 10 o'clock, somebody else might do that at 10.05, but this is the only time when all believers are supposed to be thinking about him simultaneously. This is the time for all of us to do one thing, and that is to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, to think about him. So this celebration, no doubt, consists of bread and juice that we use, but really the cup signifies the body of Christ. But it also says, when you partake of the body of Christ, the, the bread, then you actually testifying that you belong to the church of Christ. The cup, when we do it, you also, although it represents the death of Christ also on the cross, but when you partake of the cup, you are saying that you are sharing in the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ that came through his death on the cross. So, that you have received Forgiveness of sins. You are also testifying that you are looking forward for his return. So it is a ritual full of meanings. And that is why you, we do not approach it lightly. And that's why we have a warning. In First Corinthians 11, verse 26, verse 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So, here is the thing. Because it's a serious celebration. Some people in Corinth came in and just thought it was a joking matter. After they participated, they went home, got sick, some died. So that tells you how serious this is. So, he says, if you do that unwordly, and the way you do it, if there is sin, when you partake of this, you are endangering yourself spiritually. 
Therefore, you need to ensure that you check yourself. If any sin that you have committed or picked up in thought or anything, you need to confess it at this proper moment so that you'll be ready to celebrate with us. So, in order to ensure that we do that, we're going to spend a few minutes in silent prayer and let you deal with your soul with the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this privilege that you have afforded us as your Son instituted this celebration for his remembrance. We do pray that as we celebrate it, that God the Holy Spirit will enable us to think and focus on your Son, Jesus Christ. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you already know the pattern, they just remove the top part. Remove the top part, and uh, I think uh, somehow it's been easily done. In the night, just before our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread after offering and says, Eat, this represents my body. Again, Father, we are thankful for the body that has been given on our behalf. So as we continue to celebrate the cup, we also pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to cause us to focus on your son. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get to the cup, I normally will give you some few minutes also to ponder on the significance of what we're doing. Well, you take uh, open the second part.
In the same fashion, our Lord took the cup after offering thanks, says, Drink from it, all of you. If you would stand with me as we sing number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Before the break and before the Lord's Supper, we have reviewed the first thing that we studied last week, so to say, by reminding us that the message of this section of First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, is that enjoyment of God's blessings under good spiritual leadership will not shield us or shield you from the judgment of God if you displease Him. So we gave three reasons for uh, presenting the message this way. The first one was that the death of majority of the Israelites in the desert is because of God's displeasure with them. The second reason is to dissuade us, believers, from evil desires. The third one, that Israel's experience was written down as a warning and example for us. So, we, after reviewing that, we also mentioned the fact that we spent some time last week dealing with spiritual vigilance. So with that, we began with verse 13. And verse 13, we indicated that there are three facts about temptation and trial. We spent some time to show that the Greek word 
translated temptation or trial in some English versions should really be understood as temptation or examination and we gave reasons uh, why it should be taken with the meaning of examinations. Actually, we gave four reasons. The first one, that the experts tell us that the word temptation is a more general meaning to capture the biblical sense of the Greek word used than the word uh, trial or test. Now, because the biblical idea of temptation is not primarily of seduction of anyone as we modern people think about it, but of putting someone to test or to examination. That was the first reason. Our second reason is that temptation is not the same as sin. The third reason that the Greek word translate test or trial is usually when there is suffering associated in the context. And the fourth reason that the meaning of temptation or examination allows for a broader application and interpretation, of course, of what is given here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13. Now, so we went in and examined uh, a case to show that God's examination or the examination given in the scripture could be viewed as friendly or hostile. So we picked up Abraham as the example of a friendly examination when God asked him to offer his son, uh, his unique son, which he he did. um, Because we know that wasn't completely carried out, but God has seen his intention and stopped him. So from his experience, we came to two deductions that friendly testing or examination is directly from God to an individual or groups with so with him knowing what the outcome will be so that is why we say then that the second as a deduction is that the outcome of a friendly testing is assured whether it's positively or negatively so with that we began to show that God knew exactly from according to his plan what the outcome is going to be and that is what we cited Isaiah 46 verse 10 which is where we begin the second session it is I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times what is still to come I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please so the point is that a friendly examination by God has a decided outcome, whether positive or negative. So anyway, it is our assertion that the meaning examination or temptation of a Greek word in the sense of examination to learn the nature or the character of a person or to cause a person to do something wrong enables us to recognize that the examination we face in our spiritual life can be friendly or hostile. Now we have considered the friendly aspect of our examination. So we turn now, or turn our attention to the hostile examination that we encounter in our spiritual life. 
Now hostile examination that a believer faces may or may not involve suffering. But his goal though is to cause a believer to sin. That's his goal. Now by the way, we will use the word tempt, tempt, tempt in describing hostile examination. As we use the word test for friendly examination. So we use the word tempt here to describe that. Anyway, we have reference though the examination of Job under friendly examination because God was directly behind it. Now his examination or test involved painful experiences or sufferings but Satan's goal was so that Job would sin against God as that is what he meant in the passage we cited previously specifically Job chapter 1 verse 11 Job 1 11 Job 1.11 reads, But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the, to curse God means to speak evil words against him. Now speaking evil words against God is a sin that the Lord indicated that his punishment is death, as indicated in Leviticus chapter 24 Verse 16. Leviticus chapter 24 verse 16. It reads, Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him, whether an alien or a native born. When he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. Now it is this instruction that Jezebel used wrongly, of course, to cause the death of neighbors, as we read in First Kings chapter twenty-one, verse ten. First Kings chapter twenty one verse ten. He reads First Kings chapter twenty one verse ten reads First Kings chapter twenty one verse ten reads But sit two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed God not cursed both God and the king. So that's what Israel, God told me. One who blasphemes, that is, curses God or king, should be put to death. So, then take him out and stone him to death. So the point, though, is that to curse God is to sin against him. So Satan's goal in inflicting various sufferings on Job was so he would sin against God. Now suffering as an examination to cause someone to sin is part of what the Lord told the church in Semina, one of the same Asiatic churches, that Satan would do by imprisoning some of them 
to cause them to deny their faith in him according to Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. It is, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Now by the way, there are those who think that the suffering of some in Semina through imprisonment should be understood both as hostile and friendly examination in that while Satan has the goal to cause believers in Semina to deny their faith that God will use the examination in a positive way to demonstrate how faithful these believers were. Now all the same, it's not always the case that Satan will examine a believer by causing suffering. But often, he uses words or suggestions to get a believer to sin. Doesn't mean he's always going to uh, put some hardship on your way. He can use words to try to entice you to sin as a believer. So we, we do have this kind of thing because the first recorded examination of Satan, of any human being, that his goal was, of course, clearly to sin against God, was that of Eve. His temptation of Eve involved a question that was to cause the woman to doubt God and so to rebel against him and against his word, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 3. Now hold on to it. That's, well, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If you need 12 with a marker, uh, eventually we're going to come back uh, to Genesis. So put your marker there. It is. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals to the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We'll make some more comments, but it's, uh, this is one of those things that we say, all the devil wants to do is plant doubt in your mind. He had he had that when God instructed them to eat from this particular tree. So he said, did God really say that? That's all he wants to put it out. Anyway, so here, it's a, he's of words. That's what we're arguing. He doesn't always mean he's going to 
uh, try you with or test you with something that will cause some pain, which but he can just use words to cause you to go against God. Now David's examination that led to his sin of adultery and murder did not involve any suffering, but presentation of a situation to see a naked woman taking bath, as we read in Second Samuel chapter eleven, verses two and four. First, we looked at this passage last week uh, when we were demonstrating the fact that uh, privilege, position can cause somebody to be arrogant. And we used this passage to show how David, his privilege caused him to be arrogant to do what he did. Anyway, the passage reads, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now they have flat roof. It's not the kind of roof we have yet today. So from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had preferred herself from her uncleanness then she went back home. Now, although it's not uh, uh, specifically stated that Satan was behind the examination of David, we should not doubt that he was because he wanted David to sin, probably to see if God's promise to David of having an everlasting dynasty will be nullified. It's it's interesting to observe that the failure of David took place after the Lord had promised him an everlasting dynasty followed by military victories. Thus, it seems that Satan wanted to destroy David in a sense because uh, after this sin, all that is recorded in the rest of the life of David, as we have it, has to do with domestic problems that involve several things. I mean, from once we reach this passage in Second Samuel, from there to the end, it was all troubles for David. God had promised him. I mean, Daniel is going to last forever, really. And Satan said, okay, let's go see what God is going to do. I'm going to cause this guy to sin. And that's what he did. So, from there now, in this passage, we saw one incident after the other. So, we saw the rape of Tema by Ammon, the death of uh, David's sons, first Absalom killing Ammon for raping the, the sister, who is uh, Ammon's half sister. Also, for Absalom leading a rebellion against his father. And they're in the battlefield. So all from then on, everything went down the hill in terms of suffering. So that's what Satan was thinking that maybe I can get him to sin and see what God is going to do, whether he's not going to rescind his promise. And God, that didn't happen anyway. So anyhow, Satan was behind 
the examination of David to cause him to sin through adultery and murder. Now this statement leads us in to the next fact we should be aware about hostile examination of believers either to cause them to suffer or to sin. Now the intermediate primary source of hostile examination that a believer faces that may or may not involve suffering is Satan. He is the intermediate primary source. Now that Satan is the primary intermediate source of temptation for us can be traced to the fall of humankind into sin in the Garden of Eden. As we read in the passage we just cited, I told you I was coming back to it, in Genesis chapter 3. Just, you don't need to go back, but I just really listen to verse, verse 1 again as I read it. It is, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what he's saying is, he's trying to take a situation in order to cause the fall of mankind. So he planted all these doubts, like I said, in order to see what the woman is going to do. So his intention was to derail God's plan, as we're going to uh, see later on. Anyway, so this passage tells us, yes, his intention was really to destroy uh, God's plan for mankind. Now there's another passage in the Old Testament scripture that implies Satan is a source, intermediate of course, source of hostile action that leads to sin. And that is in First Chronicles chapter 21 verses 1 and 2. First Chronicles First Chronicles chapter 21 look at verse, verses 1 and 2 it is Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel so David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. Now there's a problem of how to understand the word Satan here. Uh, so that the Hebrew word Satan is understood as a proper name of the arch enemy of God, the devil, or some understand the word as an unspecified adversary that is either heavenly or human. Now the difficulty of understanding how to interpret the Hebrew word Satan is because the event reported uh, here is assigned to God in Second Samuel chapter twenty four verses one and two.
Now bear in mind that we read that Satan incited David. That's what we read in First Chronicles. But now we're going to read something different. And that's where the problem comes with a lot of people. Second Samuel 24 verse 1 and 2 reads, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Same thing. So, the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribe of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. So this passage clearly indicates that God was the one that incited David into action. Therefore, many then have problem with the fact that the passage implies that God was indeed indirectly responsible for David's action. Now for this reason, these individuals or these interpreters Adopt the position that the Hebrew word in First Chronicles should be taken as a human adversary, probably the ruler of a nearby country that was responsible for David's action, or that that took a stand, or that such people took a stand against Israel. Now, to me, such interpretation uh, does not solve the problem since God is clearly stated as being the one that incited David to action in the record of Second Samuel chapter 24, verse, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, so, clearly, those who say, no, it's dealing with a human, they still don't solve the problem. For me, though, I see no problem with the fact that um, God is said to have incited David to act uh, the way he did. It seems to me that the most plausible explanation is that God is the ultimate source of David's action. But Satan was an intermediate agent of God to cause David to act. That to me is the best way to explain what seems to be a contradiction. God is the ultimate the intermediate agent he uses Satan. So when, when Satan acted, it is really God who is the ultimate. So that's why we contend that Satan is the primary intermediate source that God uses or that can be involved in the hostile examination. Now to think though uh, that uh, Satan acted on his own will make him equal to God as in the comparison uh, of this the two passages suggests but of course such a thing is unthinkable since Satan is a created being of God now you see many times when we studied uh, in the past I've tried to explain we give too much credit to Satan and he loves that that's all he wants to be worshipped. So when we give him too much credit, not realizing he is an intermediate agent. He is not an equal force with God. In other words, we can say God is here in charge of good and Satan is here in charge of 
battle or evil. So they are competing. No such thing. God is the creator. So what we are saying is, yes, Satan is an intermediate agent and not the ultimate source. Now, those who have problem with our explanation must also have difficulty explaining other passages where God, for example, used an evil spirit to accomplish his purpose. As we read in First Kings chapter 22, verses 19 to 23. First Kings chapter twenty two verses nineteen to twenty three. It is Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. Now, by the way, this host of heaven refers to the gods that we studied in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. They refer to the gods here. Standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into a fucking remote Gilead and go into his dead there? One suggested this, another, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. He said, you will succeed in enticing him. Said the Lord, go and do it. So, now the Lord was has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. So this is why a situation where all the prophets say the same thing. You go to war, Ahab, you're going to be victorious because the evil spirit has taken over, giving the same message to all of them. Only one true prophet here, in this case Micaiah, stood out. Because God actually revealed to him what happened. Now this is one of those reasons I, I keep emphasizing to all of us. Don't be carried away with the number. It doesn't mean anything when it comes to God's plan. And oh, you know, they will like number. It's not in the spiritual life. Now there are so many today that I mean in the pulpits. They are doing their best as they think, but they are still misleading. To people. Because they are not teaching the full realm of, of the word of God. They don't explain it. And they are very few. So when you think about one to four hundred prophets. That gives you the idea. And that's why personally I am convinced there are very few places on the planet today. Where the pastors are really actually teaching the Bible. There are very few. Because you can't have this kind of thing and not recognize that. That is very easy for the whole mass to go one direction. And those who are, as I you know, remember the illustration I, I used, borrowed from somebody who said, you know, if you go to the stream or river 
All the dead fish flowing with the, the flow. Only the life ones swimming against the uh, stream. So the same thing, or against the current. So that is what you see. That most time when you see all, everyone going in the same direction. As I've told you as a Christian, I'm always suspicious of that. Always. Because when you see a message doing this, this something, something is not right. Because very few will stand to the truth. This is an example of it. And the same thing when the Lord says, many are called, but few are chosen. Keep telling us, <laughs> don't be carried away with number. They're more concerned about the truth. Anyway, we're not really particularly concerned with uh, various passages that imply that God incited actions that are considered evil since we treated this matter in detail in our study of the sovereign plan of God. But simply to recognize that Satan could not be the ultimate source of anything, even temptation or source. He could not be that. Because he's a, crea- a, a, a creation of God. Now we are only saying that as far as hostile examination that leads to sin, Satan is its intermediate primary source. Ultimately, you remember we studied this, ultimately, how do we deal with the issue of sin and God? And we deal with that in our study of uh, the sovereign plan of God, knowing that God has to be the ultimate control of all things. Anyway, so our assertion that Satan is the intermediate primary source of hostile examination that has its goal as sin is evident in his temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take for example, Satan examined Jesus to prove that he is the Son of God in Matthew chapter 4 verses 3 and 4. Matthew chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 Matthew chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 He reads The tempter that Satan came to him and said If you are the son of God fill these stones to become bread Jesus answered it is written Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now it is true that this test is often taken by some as a test to misconstrue the divine sonship as the power to do miracles. But really, it is an examination by the devil to see if Jesus will obey him since he probably did not doubt that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He didn't doubt that. Now he said that he didn't doubt because even the demons knew who Jesus uh, is. They knew his identity as we can gather from Luke chapter 4 verse 21. Luke Chapter 4, verse 21. 
Luke chapter 4 verse 21. I mean, sorry. Luke chapter 4 verse 41. Luke chapter 4 verse 41. Not 21. It reads, Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Doesn't if demons knew that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, certainly their chief, the devil, knew that he is the Son of God. So included then in his examination or tests of Jesus Christ is simply the desire to obey him which, is, which would be, of course, a sin in the sense of doing what Satan wants. See, all the, many times people don't realize all that Satan wants is do what he wants you to do. It doesn't always mean that what he wants to do from the way we look at him may not, we won't call it sin. But the issue is we obey him. And that's what he wants. Because when you obey a person who is a, in a being that you don't see, what you're doing is worship. Regardless of who started, what worship is. Worship reduced in a very simple sentence, in simple word, obedience. When you obey God, you worship Him. That is the basic definition that we started from Genesis 22 anyway. Now, so, Satan, his intention was simply for Christ to obey Him. Because there's nothing wrong with Christ turning stone into bread. He can do that. What's wrong with that? But if he did it, he would have obeyed Satan. And that's all Satan wants. Obey him. In other words, you worship him. That aside, uh, the temptation of Jesus Christ by the devil indicates that he is really the intermediate primary source of hostile examination. Now Satan is no doubt the intermediate primary source of hostile examination that leads to sin. But... There are other intermediate secondary sources with the same goal. The first one, our sinful nature examines us with evil desires to cause us to sin. It is this fact that the Holy Spirit conveyed in James, the passage I've quoted before, but uh, let's go specifically to James chapter 1 verse 14. James chapter 1 verse 14 James chapter 1 verse 14 reads but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed now James did not mention Satan in this passage, as a source of hostile examination, where the evil impulse in a person, that's what he meant in the phrase, evil desire. That's an, an, an impulse inside of us. So that has to do with our sinful nature. See, the evil desire is part of our sinful nature, as implied in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 all I'm going to do is to show that yes evil desire is part of our sinful nature so when that is at work that means the sinful nature is at work Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 reads all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires its desires that's those evil desires associated with sinful nature and thoughts like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath now again that phrase the craving of our sinful nature literally the Greek reads this way the desires of our flesh that's the way the Greek reads the desires of our flesh so that's what causes that's our a secondary agent our flesh but we call it sinful nature our flesh that's what gets us you know test us to see which way we're going to go so the literal phrasing the desires of our flesh may be interpreted as desires that characterize the flesh that is fleshly desires or desires that originate from the flesh because that's, you know the greek the desires of our flesh the genitive in the greek has so many meanings and here i'm saying it could be read in one or two ways desires that characterize the flesh or the desire that originates from the flesh now there is really no significant difference in the two interpretation but it is more likely that the emphasis on the phrase is to indicate that the flesh is the source of desires now flesh here is used as a seat of sin and rebellion against God so that those under his control could not possibly please God we're not talking about the flesh that you can pinch you know? we're saying that is really uh, we use our word flesh but it's really to describe a seat of sin and rebellion and so when you're under his control you cannot please God this is clearly what's meant in Romans chapter 8 verse 8 Romans 8 verse 8 Romans chapter 8 verse 8 reads those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God so this seat of sin puts our uh, puts out desires and impulses that are contrary to the will of God so that flesh often described as the sinful nature is the source secondary of course source of desires that tempt us to sin. Another secondary intermediate source of hostile examination of believers is the world, the world in which we live. And that's the way as indicated in First John chapter 2, verse 16. First John First John chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, 
First John chapter 2 verse 16 reads, For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eye, and the boasting of what he has endorsed, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the world is a system of all that's opposed to God. Now the world system contains many things that are intended to cause a believer to sin, as Apostle John listed in this verse. Thus then, we can say that the world system is a secondary intermediate source of hostile examination of believers with the goal of causing us to sin against our God. So anyway, we have briefly then mentioned sources of hostile examination of believers. But there is one more fact we should understand about hostile examination of believers by Satan. It is that the outcome of hostile examination is uncertain. The outcome of hostile examination is uncertain. We mean that unlike the positive examination, where God knows the outcome of it ahead of time, Satan does not know the outcome of his examination of a believer. He hopes that the believer will fail the examination so to lead to sin. Now when he first approached Eve, he was not certain of the outcome. That was the reason he tried to persuade her to rebel against God with the reason he provided as stated in the passage we have read before and go back to it in Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 and 5. We're saying he was uncertain, so he tried to persuade Eve in a different way. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 reads, You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, you, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, still hold on to Genesis. Now, it is because Satan was not sure of the outcome of his hostile examination of the woman that he lied in, in an emphatic manner to the woman when he said, you will not surely die. That's a lie. You will not surely die. Now this lie was a hostile response to God's word that indicated that when Adam and Eve uh, if they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they will die, as the Lord emphatically conveyed in to them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Genesis 2, verse 17. Genesis 2, verse 17 reads, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Notice you will, that's certain thing God said. That is certain. Now Satan switch it around and say you will certainly not die. That's why he does this thing, you see. You know, people don't pay attention to what's important. So here it is, it's he's using taking God's word, reverse it, putting some emphasis to make the woman believe him and what he's about to do. So we contend that Satan did not know with certainty that the woman will accept his, his suggestion. But he hoped though that that would be the case. So he told the truth regarding knowledge Adam and Eve would acquire. As in the sentence when it says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, that he'll use, but then that truth was confirmed by God himself. In Genesis 3 verse 22. Look at chapter 3 verse 22. It is, and the Lord said, and the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That's what Satan said will happen. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and, and eat and live forever. So all the same, Satan was not sure of the outcome. Although he won over the woman in his hostile examination, he won. That's right. He won the first round, so to say. God won the second round. Now, the, the, the uncertainty of the outcome of his hostile examination by Satan is observable in his hostile examination of Job. See, he also had hoped that Job would fail the examination so as to cause God, as stated in the passage that we uh, sat there previously, you don't need to go there, but I know some of you still go there. Job chapter 1 verse 11. Let me just read it because we've already, you've already written it down. He reads, But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Not always saying to God, I am certain. Although he was lying, so I'm certain he would do that. Now Satan, again, was hopeful that if he were granted permission to examine Job in a hostile manner, that he would fail and so cause God. But that did not happen, proving that despite what he said, Job would do, he did not do. So, uh, that intent in, in, in itself tells us, he's not sure of the outcome ahead of time. He doesn't know that. In effect, his statement, he will surely cause you, to your face proved to be a lie because he was not certain of the outcome. Now this uncertainty on the part of Satan regarding his hostile examination of anyone is also evident in his temptation of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that Satan recognized Jesus Christ as a second Adam since all angelic creation would have recognized Jesus' entrance into the world as something unique in that they did not know what to make out of it or make out of the incarnation. Hence, the command of God to them to worship him as the human author 
presented in a passage we studied in detail because we have studied the book of Hebrews completely. There we examined Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. This tells us the angels didn't know what to make out of the incarnation. They didn't know how to respond. Here is God taking on a human form in the, in, in the wall. So how, what are they going to do? So this is why we have this command. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. See, they didn't know what to do. Here is God. Now he comes in taking a human body. So what are we to make out of it? Because so you worship him, still God clothed in human form. That's why we have this. Anyway, we contend that the angels were uh, not sure of what to make of God taking on human nature. That is the reason God commanded them to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in incarnation. Thus, then Satan would have considered Jesus Christ as both God and man. Now, this being the case, after the announcement of the birth of Christ with explanation of his function as a a savior. Satan would have recognized that to be the case as being the same, that he was in the same position as a first Adam. So, he would have recognized him as a second Adam, or the last Adam, since that is how Jesus Christ is viewed by the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul, as we may gather from what is stated in First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. It is, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So it is probably because Satan recognized Jesus Christ as second Adam. He won the first round through Eve and Adam. So, now he sees the second Adam that's coming to give redemption. So he thought maybe now let's go to the to the second Adam. So he thought he could conduct a hostile examination towards Jesus Christ with the hope that the result will be the same as with the first Adam, leading to derailing here or to derail the mission of the Messiah. In other words, if Christ actually obeyed him, then there would have been no point that salvation will ever take place. Now, so, what he had intended is simply to derail Jesus' mission. So, if this was not the case, if, it didn't, if that wasn't the case to derail, then there would have been no point in Satan's temptation of Christ as regarded in the gospel. Why would he do that? His intention was to derail him so he would save mankind. In other words, we are certain that if Satan uh, were certain, that Jesus Christ 
will not fail the hostile examination he, that he will unleash on him, he would not have tried. He was hoping. He didn't know. So he wanted. He just tried. And, you know, maybe I can score again, just like I scored with the first Adam. So the point is this, that the outcome of hostile examination by Satan is uncertain. Now you should understand this point whenever Satan subjects you to hostile examination. Whenever he tests you or tempts you, just remember that. He doesn't know what the outcome will be. So you should understand this point. And so, since he does not know for certain that you will fail his examination, that is why then he continues examining believers in hostile ways. Now, even when we have uh, scored perfectly, so to say, uh, in the hostile examination due to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Satan continues his hostile examination because he hopes to derail our spiritual life. In other words, he doesn't just try once, and that's it. He will try, he will try, he will try, continuously, because he wants to derail your spiritual life. And mine, that's, he doesn't want to give up. So if we know this, if we have this knowledge, that that's all he wants to do, he is not sure if we are going to fail. But he just wants to try. So if we know this, then, that should cause all of us to strive to ensure that he fails in his examination towards us. That should be what uh, guides you. Now we will deal with how uh, this is to be done, though. We, you know, I say we should strive to ensure that we don't fail. How we go about that? We do that later in the study. Now, the data as he may, a first fact then, about temptation or trial, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul wants Corinthians and so all believers to know is that no believer ever faces temptation that is not common to foreign uh, humanity, as in the first sentence of First Corinthians 10 verse 13, that, that's all we've expounded this morning, which is, no temptation has seized you except what is coming to man. We've not finished with it. There's more about this, but that we'll do in our next week's study. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here, here listening, or someone listening over the internet, that if you were to die now, you go straight to hell, because you are not a child of God yet. You don't have life. You're a religious person. You may even have been baptized, but you don't have life. So, here is the thing. God in his love has sent his son Jesus Christ who left the heaven with all his glories come to this planet in order to die for your sins and my sins. He had the power not to die for our sins. But he willingly gave himself up. He demonstrated this because when the, after all the mockery trial and the, uh, all that's happened to him he never went. But really, the place he showed us that if he didn't want to go to the cross, no one can hold him, is when they came to arrest him. Because they, he, they came with clubs and all that. He said, who are you looking for? 
And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. That is God's spoke. And they all get, fell to the ground. Which means, if he didn't want to be arrested, he, oh, he keeps saying that, and no one will arrest him. But he willingly gave himself. Because he is the one that created hell. He is God the creator. So he created hell. He knew what a horrible place it will be to spend eternity. And so he left heaven to come and redeem you so that you didn't go there. Now, how are you going to do? How are you going to escape it? Well, the Bible tells you that you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? The Bible again says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, you have life through his name. If you believe that he is the one that came and went to the cross and paid for all your sins, your past, present, and future, that all of that have been paid for, if you believe that, that he was, uh, he carried it on the cross, was then buried and he resurrected and is now in heaven. If you trust that, if you believe that, you will receive eternal life. On the other hand, he say, I don't believe that. Well, you are knocking on the door to hell. We just say knocking because you're not dead yet. Once you die, you enter it. You are very close to it. If you reject this message, if you reject what offer that Christ has given on your behalf. So believe in him, trust him, and escape the coming judgment. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will cause us to recognize that we are your children who you have enlightened to know how the enemy will continue to present hostile examination to cause us to rebel against you. Enable us to recognize that he does not have the power to do so, nor does he know the outcome, so that we will strive to ensure that we do not yield to him. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.